Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our national lead and the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. We saw some very emotional moments in court this afternoon, as never-before-seen videos were played for the jury, showing the last minutes of George Floyd's life. Just moments ago, a 61-year-old witness essentially broke down on the stand after re-watching George Floyd on the ground, saying he could not breathe and crying out desperately for his mom. I know that this is difficult. Can you just explain sort of what you're feeling in this moment? I can feel helpless. I don't have a mama either. Another witness today described feelings of guilt and disbelief, a clear sign of the weight of this trial, as CNN's Sarah Seidner reports. 61-year-old eyewitness Charles McMillan took the stand, breaking down in sobs after prosecutors played this body camera video of George Floyd interacting with police. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Thank you. I can't breathe. Stop moving. Mama. 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 I feel helpless. I don't have a mama either. McMillan is the man you hear on the video begging Floyd to give in to police before Floyd is taken to the ground. Because I have had interaction with officer myself, and I understand once you get in the cup, you can't win. You're done. Earlier in the day, the jury saw not-seen-before surveillance video from inside the cup food store. 19-year-old former cashier Christopher Martin took the stand to explain what was going on leading up to police arriving. Do you recall what it was that you sold to uh, A pack of cigarettes. Martin says Floyd seemed high. When I had asked, asked him if he played uh, baseball, uh, he went on to respond to that, but it kind of took him a little long, so it would appear that he was high and paid for cigarettes with an odd-looking $20 bill. He testified the store policy is if a cashier accepts counterfeit money, it comes out of their paycheck. I took it anyways, and I was planning to just put it on my tab um, until I second-guessed myself. And as you can see in the video, I kept examining it, and then I eventually told my manager. The manager of the store asked another employee to call police on Floyd after the teenage employees confronted Floyd at his car twice. When police eventually detained Floyd, Martin heard a commotion and went outside. George was motionless, limp, and Chauvin seemed very, he was in a resting state. What's going through your mind during that time period? Uh, Disbelief and guilt. Why guilt? Um, If I would have just not taken the bill. This could have been avoided. On cross-examination, Chauvin's attorney Eric Nelson pressed Martin about Floyd's demeanor and the counterfeit money. You uh, formed the opinion that Mr. Floyd was under the influence of something. Correct. But it was Charles McMillan who shook the courtroom. We know that George Floyd's brother, Rodney Floyd, was in there, uh, visibly emotional, listening to McMillan. Look at Officer Derek Chauvin at one point and say... 
I remember you five days before this happened. He came up to Chauvin's car and said to him, you know what, you go home in your safety and let the next man go home safely too. He said back then he looked at him as a man, but today he looks at him as a maggot. Now we're also hearing brand new video uh, from the body camera of Derek Chauvin. And we hear for the first time Chauvin talking about why he did what he did, saying, and I'm quoting here, we've got to control this guy, talking about George Floyd, because he's a sizable guy and it looks like he's probably on something. We have seen much of the body camera video from the several other officers on the scene, but we had not heard that. Jake? All right, Sarah Seidner covering the trial for us. Let's discuss with my panel. Uh, Jennifer, let me start with you. We just saw video from Derek Chauvin's body camera, where for the first time publicly we hear the former officer explain why he restrained George Floyd. As Sarah just said, he told a witness, a witness quote, we got to control this guy because he's a sizable guy and it looks like he is probably on something, unquote. As a former federal prosecutor, what's the importance of those comments? Well, Jake, what they're trying to do, of course, is to chip away at the prosecution's case that what Derek Chauvin did was use excessive force and was unreasonable. They're trying to put forward the case that it was reasonable because he was so big and he was potentially on something. They have a real uphill battle here, of course, seeing how long Derek Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck and how unresponsive he was. But that's what they're trying to do. I don't think they're doing a very good good job with this narrative. I think they're really going to have to stick to the, the causation as their main defense here. But that's what they're trying to do with that defense. I will say one thing that struck me from the footage we saw today is how calm and how unemotional Derek Chauvin is when he's saying this on the body cam footage. It's really kind of chilling the way that he doesn't seem to have any emotion at all about it. I think that is likely to backfire on the defense. I don't think the jury is going to like that that absolute lack of any empathy at all towards the person that he just put in the back of that ambulance. Van, uh, the emotion of today, we saw one witness break down on the stand. Uh, what must it be like uh, to be on that stand, be reliving this, or, or be on the jury watching it? Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, heartbreaking and devastating. And, and I think, um, you know, for people who, there are a lot of people who still have not been able to bring themselves to look at this video. When I talk to people, they say, you know, I've, I've heard about it. Um, I, I understand what it is. I don't want to look at it myself. Or I saw it last year. I'd never want to see it again. Uh, so the people who are actually there and have their own traumatic memories of that, then they've seen the video, and now they're seeing new video, uh, and there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. You can't hit pause. Uh, you can't say, geez, I'm going to watch some Netflix. You're, you're there in real time in front of the whole world. And this, if, if this doesn't crack through your armor, there's something wrong with you. And that is why the officer's conduct is so shocking and so appalling. Uh, because people are seeing uh, you know, something. They can't even watch it third hand on a video without crying, without being emotional. And yet this officer the entire time, he never showed any emotion, any empathy. He was nonchalant and he was killing someone the whole time. And people were telling him, you know, they'd have to guess, you're killing this man. The man says, you're killing me. And there's no emotion from the officer. And every human being on the planet with a functioning brainstem is moved by, this, by the video and by the testimony. And as you noted, Jennifer, uh, the defense is likely going to lean quite a bit on the Hennepin County uh, medical examiner saying that the reason George Floyd died was because of pre-existing conditions uh, and his drug, the drugs in his system, as opposed to 
a police officer kneeling on his neck for nine and a half minutes. Um, is there any risk at all in the prosecution bringing all these emotional testimonies forward? Uh, it's obviously devastating from on, on an, an emotional point of view, uh, from an emotional point of view. But the, the defense is going to say this isn't about emotion. It's about facts. And the facts are this is what the Hennepin County Medical Examiner said. Well, when that this trial shifts to that issue, to the causation issue, the prosecution will shift as well. You know, they won't any longer be calling these bystanders who are testifying about what they saw. They'll be calling the medical experts, too. So everyone is going to kind of shift into the mode of let's talk science here. Let's talk about what actually caused the death of George Floyd. But remember, the prosecution only has to show that the kneeling on the neck was a substantial factor, a substantial causation factor. So they don't have to show that there weren't any other potential issues that went into the cause of death. So it's not as high a standard as, as it might be. So I do think that they still have a good case. But you're right, it'll be less emotional once we shift to that second part of the case. And Van Jones, uh, that witness acknowledged that based on his interactions, the, the witness uh, that worked at the store Based on his inter interactions uh, with George Floyd, he believed that George Floyd w was on drugs to a degree, but he was also able to have many conversations with him. Um, this seems to be the prosecution trying to blunt the argument by the defense uh, that drugs in George Floyd's system accounted for his not only his, his behavior and the reason that uh, the officers had to restrain him, but also his death. Yeah, well... Uh, the reality is there are a lot of people in our country that use a lot of stuff. Uh, people are smoking, they're drinking, they're popping pills. I mean, we have an addicted society, uh, and yet uh, that's not a, a capital crime. Uh, using a, a controlled substance in the United States is not a death sentence, and many people uh, who are watching have used controlled substances even within the past week. That's not a capital crime. Uh, the, there's a standard in our country called excessive force, uh, if you use more force than is necessary to effect an arrest, that's an excessive use of force. It is completely inconceivable. Listen, he was fighting back. Nobody argues with that. Uh, he was resisting. Nobody argues with that. But then once you have him on the ground and he's handcuffed, he's under control at that point. He can't do anything. Uh, and you do not have to then continue to strangle him. So, uh, yes, he, 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 was, he was apparently was on something. Uh, but there, he, there was no reason for him to die that day. Yeah, and the jurors can think to themselves, last time I had three martinis, if somebody kneeled on my neck for nine and a half minutes and I died, would that be because of the martinis or for some other reason? Uh, Van Jones, Jennifer Rogers, thanks so much. Planes, trains, and automobiles are just moments away from President Biden unveiling his massive infrastructure proposal. We'll bring that to you live. Then the news many parents have been waiting for, how well does one of the COVID vaccines work in minors? That's next. Stay with us. Any moment now, we expect to hear from President Biden speaking in Pittsburgh, unveiling his infrastructure plan when he comes to the microphones. We will bring that to you live. But until then, let's talk about our health lead. There is good news on the vaccine front. Pfizer trial data shows that its vaccine is 100 percent effective in preventing severe coronavirus illness for children ages 12 to 15. On the other hand, Coronavirus cases are up 25% nationally since last week in the U.S. Deaths are up 6% in the U.S. Hospitalizations are up slightly less than 1% since last week. The dean of Brown University School of Public Health, Dr. Ashish Jha, 
joins me now. Dr. Chow, if Pfizer gets emergency use authorization to use the vaccine on kids ages 12 to 15, how will that impact getting kids back to in-person classes? Yeah, Jake, thanks for having me on. Uh, Look, I don't think it's a necessary feature. I know we can get kids back to school safely without it, but it will certainly add more confidence and it's good for the kids to get vaccinated. So I expect that a lot of 12 to 15 year olds will start getting vaccinated probably June, uh, possibly earlier, just depending on when the FDA can review this data. So I have a 13 year old daughter. Good for her. But what about my 11 year old son? What does this mean for the kids under the age of 12? Yeah, I have kids in the 12 to 15 and kids under that same issue. I think kids under 12, we're probably waiting a little bit longer. We just don't have the data yet. And my sense is we won't until probably at least the end of the summer, maybe the fall. So for kids under 12, we're going to have to wait a while. Obviously, we could get lucky and see data before then, uh, but we're really going to have to let the data drive this here. But as you know, you don't need the kids to all be vaccinated to open the schools uh, safely. Um, Because of the high efficacy, do you think schools are nonetheless going to require children to be vaccinated before they can resume resume uh, in-person classes? Yeah, this is an ongoing debate. Uh, I think I can imagine that once uh, vaccines are available for all children, that that it could become one of the many vaccines that uh, schools require. There's certainly nothing against it. Uh, What I don't want to do is see that somehow this is a minimum requirement in order to get kids back in. But once kids are back in and the vaccines are available, authorized for younger children, uh, I can see this becoming part of the routine vaccination schedule. Overall, in the U.S., we should note, even though there is this good news on the vaccine front, cases are up 25 percent since last week. Deaths are up 6 percent. Hospitalizations slightly up, less than 1 percent. This must concern you. It does. It does. And in some ways, it's really predictable, Jake. You know, for about a month and a half, two months, we've been saying that in the second half of March, we expect that B117, the variant from the UK, to become dominant. It is now dominant. It is spreading across the country. It's much more contagious. And I think that's a major reason why we're seeing this increase. Of course, states relaxing their public health measures is not helping at all. So our vaccinations are going great, but not enough to keep up with the B117 uh, variant. Delta Airlines uh, announced that they're going to resume selling middle seats starting May 1st. Before that, they didn't sell them so people so people could seat, uh, sit apart. Uh, do you think we're going to be in a good enough place by May uh, that this won't be an issue? Or is this perhaps jumping the gun? It's a, it feels a little early to me. I think by May 1st, most high-risk people should be vaccinated. But given what you just said about case numbers and uh, where we will be throughout April, uh, I would feel more comfortable as if it was a little later in May, where I expect a lot more people vaccinated. But no doubt about it. Certainly by June, I think most adults who want a vaccine will have one, and we will be in much, much better shape. Maybe by May, but it's hard, it feels a bit more risky at this moment. The CDC just announced that COVID-19 was the third leading cause of death in the United States, uh, behind only heart disease and cancer. The U.S. death rate also increased by about 16 percent from 2019 to 2020. Is this in line with what you might expect? It is. It's, it's actually quite shocking. Nothing ever makes it into that kind of list uh, as heart disease and cancer. Uh, but it just tells you what a horrible toll this disease had on the American population last year. Uh, and the fact that you know so many more Americans died than would in a typical year uh, really adds to that. So um, not surprising, but, but of course, very upsetting. So many more than needed to die based on what Dr. Burks told Sanjay a, a few nights ago for his special uh, in terms of the mitigation measures 
not taken by the former president and his administration. Dr. Ashish Jha, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. At any moment, we expect President Biden to step up to the microphones there in Pittsburgh. He will unveil his next major legislative priority. It will be the first of two parts of what his administration is calling the American Jobs Plan. Uh, This is a transportation, specifically $2 trillion over eight years, transportation and infrastructure push. One that the administration says will also help address the climate crisis and the racial inequality in transportation and infrastructure. CNN's Phil Manningly is traveling with President Biden in Pittsburgh, in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Phil, what exactly is in the proposal and how does President Biden intend to pay for it? Yeah, Jake, I think, I think the most notable thing, and you're going to hear the president really lay this out when he speaks to the country, is not just the scale in terms of the policy. Obviously, $2.25 trillion is quite large, but also the scale of the ambitions of the administration. When you break through this proposal or get into this proposal, yes, physical infrastructure is a key component of it. $621 billion to repair things like roads, bridges, waterways, and ports. But there's also more than $500 billion in the proposal for things like research and development. Uh, More than $100 billion uh, for water infrastructure as well. More than $300 billion for things like school infrastructure. You put all of these pieces together. There's also elements of uh, climate agenda items that the Biden administration has wanted to push forward, directing funds uh, to disadvantaged communities and other equity being a key piece of what the administration is focused on, all coming into a single proposal. And one administration officials make very clear, Jake, that they don't plan to pare back as they move forward through the negotiations process. Now, obviously, paying for this plan is going to be one of the biggest sticking points with Republicans on Capitol Hill. What the Biden administration is proposing, what the president will lay out, is to pay for the entire plan over the course of 15 years. And largely they will do that by rolling back key components of former President Trump's tax plan, increasing the corporate rate to 28% from 21%, increasing a global minimum tax from 13% to 21%, also uh, ending fossil fuel subsidies as well. That's going to be their main pay for us. However, the administration makes very clear this is the first step. Negotiations are to come. But it is very large and it is very ambitious, Jake. And if I know Congress... uh half as well as you do, uh, Phil, it's not going to be passed by next week. This is going to be a process. Yeah, and I think that's something to keep in mind. You know, you know, you watched what occurred with the American Rescue Plan, the $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package. That moved through largely exactly how the president presented it, and it moved through relatively quickly. Now, there was no Republican support, but I think it was a cleaner process than even some of the most uh, optimistic White House officials believe. This is not that. This is a very, very different process. Expect this to take months. Expect key elements of what the president proposes today, what he proposes in the second half of his plan uh, in April, to be changed significantly. You're talking about energy policy. You're talking about tax policy. These are some of the thorniest issues that Congress deals with any time they deal with them, let alone in a package that's this immense. I think one of the the things everybody's keeping an eye on right now, obviously Republicans have made clear, they are opposed to tax increases. Biden officials say they are going to reach out to Republicans. They have briefed key Republicans already on this plan and plan to do so more uh, in the coming days. President Biden spoke with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell about this plan last night. But administration officials are also very clear. They don't expect Republican support given how they're raising revenue in this plan. And that means, once again, not unlike the coronavirus relief package, they are going to be extremely reliant on Democratic unity. Obviously, very slim margins in the House, no margin for error in the U.S. Senate, and Democrats that have very different ideas about what they want in this package. We've already seen progressive Democrats say it's too lo- or it's not large enough, so they're going to be dealing with that as well as moderates. It's going to be a long process, Jake. 
All right, Phil Manningly, thanks so much. We're going to squeeze in a quick break as we wait for President Biden to step to the microphone there and lay out his enormous infrastructure plan at any moment. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. At any moment, we expect President Biden to stroll to the lectern there and speak. He's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's going to lay out his $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan. Let's talk about it as we wait for Biden to begin. Uh, Abby Phillip, put this in context for us. President Biden is hoping to shape his legacy with this major legislation. He's focused on coronavirus and the economy and pretty much else. That's it for now. Yeah, it's a really big bet from Biden that uh, this is going to be all about the economy uh, and for for the American people specifically, and that the rest of his agenda is tied up in how people feel about their households, about their futures, about their finances. And when you look at this bill, it's obviously not just infrastructure. It has a lot of major uh, sort of long-term human capital priorities in there to the extent that you're even hearing from some moderates that they view this as a kind of down payment on some of these bigger things like climate change, uh, like uh, changing the way that we that we deal with people who uh, who care for, for loved ones at home or care for children at home. I mean, these are big progressive priorities that they're trying to tackle in this bill. I think it's a big swing for the Biden administration and we'll see if they're able to, um, you know, to, to actually uh, land it. I mean, I, I don't know, I think, the politics of it, how this is going to work out with moderates. Certainly, Republicans are already pushing back hard. And Sungmin, uh, this week, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told me that this is a jobs plan with what he called climate benefits. He said you can't separate climate from infrastructure. If you're going to be doing this, you need to make sure it's uh, green. Um, but there are Republicans on Capitol Hill who don't want to even hear the word green. Right, right. I mean, climate environmental policy has been always such a contentious political issue on Capitol Hill. And, you know, Republicans are planning on opposing this package for a litany of reasons. Probably the biggest reason are the tax increases that the president is about to lay out as part of his proposal to pay for that $2.25 trillion package. But the fact that it emphasizes so much on climate change, on the greening of the economy is another reason that Republicans will be kind of reticent to latch on to this proposal. But it certainly, as Abby mentioned, really makes deep investments in climate and really shifting the kind of the American landscape to a more renewable, to a more sustainable path. And I think even just one detail that's really illustrative of that, I believe the plan spends about $174 billion for to invest in electric vehicles to try to have half a million charging stations for electric cars in 10 years. So you really do see... Methodically thought through how um, how to take all pieces of classic infrastructure, you know, roads, bridges, other projects, and really uh, focus on the environmental impact um, of these projects now and into the future. All right, we're going to squeeze in one more quick break as we uh, wait for President Biden to to step to the lectern. There, Uh, we'll be right back. Stay with us. And we're standing by for President Biden to speak in Pittsburgh. He's going to lay out his $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan. He's coming out right now. Let's listen in. Good afternoon and welcome to Pennsylvania, Mr. President. My name is Mike Fiore and I'm a senior line worker from Duquesne Light and a proud member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 29, right here in Pittsburgh. 
From day one of this pandemic, me and my coworkers have been on the front lines. It's my job. There's no working from home. We've kept the lights on and the power running to communities throughout of Western Pennsylvania. Every day I deal with our electrical grid, so I know how critical infrastructure is to our communities. That's why I'm so excited about Joe Biden's Build Back Better plan. Nearly everyone agrees that we need to modernize our roads, bridges, power grids, airports, and railroads. That we need to invest in new energy technologies and American-made manufacturing. But what President Biden is proposing isn't just an investment in infrastructure, it's an investment in good union jobs. It's an investment in good schools and strong communities. It is an investment in the future of so many forgotten paths in America. My brother teaches at Pine Richland High School in Gibsonia, just north of here, the same high school we both went to. The kind of investment Joe Biden is talking about would mean so much to his school and to his students, both now and in the years to come. For example, President Biden proposes a massive expansion of high-speed broadband, and that's critical to the health of so many small towns in this area. I've got two little kids at home myself, and I don't want to see them leave the area or even the state to find opportunities. The Build Back Better plan is directed at communities like mine. It's about opening up opportunities, revitalizing local businesses, and creating jobs. For decades, Pennsylvania was a global leader in manufacturing and good union jobs. It can be that way again, as President Biden has a solid plan to make that happen. I also don't want my kids growing up in a world where the threat of climate change hangs over their heads. That means investing in electrical vehicle charging infrastructures and all forms of clean power technology so we can slash carbon emissions and create tens of thousands of green energy jobs, union jobs. And that's exactly what President Biden is proposing. Here's another reason I'm so excited about this. I'm 100% a union guy. It is in my blood. The union changed my life, and it gave me opportunities I could never have dreamed of. Being a line worker isn't always easy, but thanks to my union, I enjoy a great paycheck, strong health and retirement benefits, and a voice on the job. Here's who else is a union guy, Joe Biden. And he said again and again, unions built the middle class. That's why his plan supports collective bargaining rights, it supports a living wage and making sure the taxpayer money goes to supporting American-made manufacturing. The men and women of the IBEW are ready to get to work rebuilding our infrastructure, retooling our plants, and revitalizing our communities and the middle class. We're ready to build America back better. So it is my pleasure and it is my honor to introduce the President of the United States, Joe Biden. Thank you. Gov Mike asked me and uh, say to Bobby, my good friend, he asked me back there, he said, do you ever get nervous? And I, he said, because I got up this morning, made breakfast for my kids, so I got to introduce the president. And what I say to you, Mike, you did a heck of a job, but I'd get nervous if I had to get up in the middle of the night, climb up a telephone pole, replace in the middle of a storm a 
connection that knocked out everybody's electricity, put a transformer. That's what would make me nervous. So uh, what you did was really good. I couldn't do what you do, pal. I couldn't do what you do. And uh, I want to, uh, and it's true, Mike, you're a union guy, me too. I got in trouble, but I don't make any apologies for it. I'm a union guy. I support unions. Unions built the middle class. It's about time they start to get piece of the action. To all my colleagues, from the county executive to the mayor, to everyone that's here, I want to say thank you. Thank you, Congressman, for the, uh, for the uh, passport in your district, and I appreciate uh, being here. Uh, I'm honored to be with you. Two years ago, I began my campaign here in Pittsburgh, saying I was running to rebuild the backbone of America. And today, I return as your president to lay out the vision of how I believe we do that, rebuild the backbone of America. It's a vision not seen through the eyes of Wall Street or Washington, but through the eyes of hardworking people, like the people I grew up with, people like Mike and his union family, union workers and his carpenter's training center, people like the folks I grew up with in Scranton and Claymont, Delaware, People who get up every day, work hard, raise their family, pay their taxes, serve their country, and volunteer for their communities, and just looking for a little bit of breathing room, just a little bit of light. Ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things. People who break their necks every day for their families and the country they love. A country that, in fact, uh, which on the day I was elected, was in extreme distress with the virus on a deadly rampage that has now killed over 4,000, excuse me, 500, I carry it in my pocket every day. I have the list of exactly how many have died. 547,296 Americans dead from the virus. More than all the people killed in World War I World War II, the Vietnam War, 9-11, 547,296 Americans, and an economy that left millions out of work and created so much anxiety. That's why I moved so quickly to pass the American Rescue Plan with the help of my friends here in the Congress. I really mean that. It didn't pass by a whole lot, but with the leadership of Connor and Bobby and the mayor, just, you got it done. Because it was an emergency. We needed to act to save jobs, to save businesses, to save lives. And that's what we did. We're beginning to see the results. We're on our way to having given 200 million vaccination shots in the first 100 days of my presidency. When I said I'd get 100 million done, people thought it was a significant exaggeration. We're going to get 200 million done, twice the original goal, because of all the help of all of you. Leading economists are now predicting our economy will grow 6% this year. That's a rate we haven't seen in years and years. We can cut child poverty in half this year. 
With the American Rescue Plan, we're meeting immediate emergencies. Now it's time to rebuild. Even before the crisis we're now facing, those at the very top in America were doing very well, which is fine. They were doing great. But everyone else was falling behind. The pandemic only made the division so much worse and more obvious. Millions of Americans lost their jobs last year, while the wealthiest 1% of Americans saw their net worth increase by $4 trillion. Just goes to show you how distorted and unfair our economy has become. It wasn't always this way. Well, it's time to change that. I note parenthetically that I got criticized for giving tax breaks to middle class and poor folks this last time. I didn't hear that cry, you and cry, when we we're doing the same thing. When Trump's tax bill passed, 83% of the money went to the top 1%. You know, this is not to target those who made it, <clears throat> not to seek retribution. This is about opening opportunities for everybody else. And here's the truth. We all will do better when we all do well. It's time to build our economy from the bottom up and from the middle out, not the top down. That hadn't worked very well. For the economy overall, it hadn't worked. Because Wall Street didn't build this country. You, great middle class, built this country. And unions built the middle class. And it's time, <clears throat> and this time, when we rebuild the middle class, we're going to bring everybody along, regardless of your background, your color, your religion, no matter. Everybody gets to come along. So today, I'm proposing a plan for the nation that rewards work, not just rewards wealth. It builds a fair economy that gives everybody a chance to succeed, and it's going to create the strongest, most resilient, innovative economy in the world. It's not a plan that tinkers around the edges. It's a once-in-a-generation investment in America, unlike anything we've seen or done since we built the interstate highway system and the space race decades ago. In fact, it's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. It will create millions of jobs, good-paying jobs. It will grow the economy make us more competitive around the world, promote our national security interests, and put us in a position to win the global competition with China in the upcoming years. It's big, yes. It's bold, yes. And we can get it done. It has two parts, the American Jobs Plan and the American Families Plan. Both are essential to our economic future. In a few weeks, I'll talk about the American's family plan, but today I want to talk about the American's jobs plan. I'll begin with the heart of the plan. It modernizes transportation infrastructure, our roads, our bridges, our airports. I just left your airport. The director of the airport said we're about to re renovate the airport. Is that right, Mr. County Executive? We're going to renovate. We're going to employ thousands of people. And she looked at me and said, I can't thank you enough.
for this plan. It grows the economy in key ways. It puts people to work to repair and upgrade that we badly need. It makes it easier and more efficient to move goods, to get to work, and to make us more competitive around the world. Some of you local officials know when someone wants to come in the area and a company wants to invest, what do they ask? Where's the first rail bed? How can I get to the railroad? What access interstate do I have? What's the water like? Tell me about it. It goes on and on. It's about infrastructure. The American Jobs Plan will modernize 20,000 miles of highways, roads, and main streets that are in difficult, difficult shape right now. It'll fix the nation's 10 most economically significant bridges in America that require replacement. Remember that bridge that went down? We got 10 most economically significant bridges with more commerce going across it that need to be replaced. We'll also repair 10,000 bridges, desperately needed upgrades to unclog traffic, keep people safe, and connect our cities, towns, and tribes across the country. The American Jobs Plan will build new rail corridors and transit lines, easing congestion, cutting pollution, slashing commute times, and opening up investment in communities that became connected to the cities and cities to the outskirts, where a lot of jobs are these days. It'll reduce the bottlenecks of commerce at our ports and our airports. The American Jobs Plan will lead to a transformational progress in our effort to tackle climate change with American jobs and American ingenuity, protect our community from billions of dollars of damage from historic superstorms, floods, wildfires, droughts, year after year, by making our infrastructure more secure and resilient and seizing incredible opportunities for American workers and American farmers in a clean energy future. Skilled workers, like one we just heard from, building a nationwide network of 500,000 charging stations, creating good-paying jobs by leading the world in the manufacturing and export of clean electric cars and trucks. We're going to provide tax incentives and point-of-sale rebates, re rebates to help all American families afford clean vehicles of the future. The federal government owns an enormous fleet of vehicles, which are going to be transitioned to clean electric vehicles and hydrogen vehicles right here in the United States of America by American workers with American products. When we make all of these investments, we're going to make sure, as the executive order I signed early on, that we buy American. That means investing in American-based companies and American workers. Not a contract will go out that I control that will not go to a company that is an American company with American products all the way down the line and American workers. And we'll buy the goods we need from all of America, communities that have historically been left out of these investments. Black, Latino, Asian American, Native Americans, rural, small businesses, entrepreneurs across the country. Look, today, 
up to 10 million homes in America and more than 400,000 schools and child care centers have pipes where they get their water from, pipes that are lead-based pipes, including pipes for drinking water. According to scientists, there is simply no safe exposure to lead for a child. Lead can slow development and hearing problems. American Jobs Plan will put plumbers and pipe fitters to work, replacing 100 percent of the nation's lead pipes and service lines. So every American, every child, can turn on a faucet of her fountain and drink clean water. With each $5,000 investment, replacing a line that can mean up to $22,000 in health care costs saved. Chance to protect our children, help them learn and thrive. We can't delay. We can't delay another minute. It's long past due. You know, in America, where the early interest was in internet, this thing called the internet that we invested, we, in, we, in, we invented the early, early internet. It was invented here. Millions of Americans, though, lack access to reliable high-speed internet, including more than 35 percent of rural America. It's a disparity even more pronounced during this pandemic. American jobs will make sure every single, every single American has access to high-quality, affordable, high-speed internet for businesses, for schools. And when I say affordable, I mean it. Americans pay too much for internet service. We're going to drive down the price for families who have service now and make it easier for families who don't have affordable service to be able to get it now. As we saw in Texas and elsewhere, our electrical power and power grids are vulnerable to storms, catastrophic failures, and security lapses with tragic results. My American Jobs Plan will put hundreds of thousands of people to work, hundreds of thousands of people to work, line workers, electricians, and laborers, laying thousands of miles of transmission line, building a modern, resilient, and fully clean grid, and capping hundreds of thousands of, literally, orphan oil and gas wells that need to be cleaned up because they're abandoned, paying the same exact rate that a union man or woman would get having dug that well in the first place. We'll build, upgrade, and weatherize affordable energy-efficient housing, commercial buildings for millions of Americans. Even before the pandemic, millions of working families faced enormous, enormous financial and personal strain trying to raise their kids and care for their parents at the same time, the so-called sandwich generation, or family members with disability. You've got a child at home. You can't stay home from work to take care of that child unless you lose you're going to put the child's at risk or you lose your job, or you have an elderly parent you're taking care of. And seniors and people with disabilities living independently feel that strain as well, but we know if they can remain independently living, they live longer. American Jobs Plan is going to help in big ways. It's going to extend 
access to quality, affordable home community-based care. Think of expanded vital services like programs for seniors. Or think of home care workers going into homes of seniors and people with disabilities, cooking meals, helping them get around their homes, and helping them be able to live more independently. For too long, caregivers who are disproportionately women and women of color and immigrants This plan, along with the American Families Plan, changes that with better wages, benefits, and opportunities for millions of people who will be able to get to work in an economy that works for them. You know, decades ago, the United States government used to spend 2 percent of its GDP, its gross domestic product, on research and development. Today, we spend less than 1 percent. I think it's 7 tenths of 1 percent. Here's why that matters. We're one of only a few major economies in the world whose public investment in research and development as a share of GDP has declined constantly over the last 25 years. And we've fallen back. The rest of the world is closing in and closing in fast. We can't allow this to continue. The American Jobs Plan is the biggest increase in our federal non-defense research and development spending on record. It's going to boost America's innovative edge in markets where global leadership is up for grabs. Markets like battery technology, biotechnology, computer chips, clean energy, the competition with China in particular. Critics say we shouldn't spend this money. They ask, what do we get out of it? Well, they said the same thing when we first flew into space for the first time. They said the same thing. Well, pushing the frontiers led to big benefits back home. When NASA created Apollo's digital flight control system, unheard of at the time, it led to technologies that help us today to drive our cars and fly our planes. When NASA invented ways to keep food safe for the astronauts, it led to programs that have been used to, for decades to keep food safe in supermarkets. At least 2,000 products and services have been developed and commercialized as a result of American space exploration. GPS has helped us find each other. Computer chips allow us to see and talk to one another, even when we're separated by mountains and oceans, singing happy birthday and watching the first steps of that new baby grandchild, comforting each other when comfort is needed. Think about it, what it means to you and your loved ones. We just have to imagine again I had a long discussion with Xi Jinping, leader of China, and he called to congratulate me. We spent two hours on the phone. And he said, and I was astonished, my NASA security team and the China experts were on the line. He said, you've always said, Mr. President, that you can define America in one word, possibilities. That's who we are. In America, anything's possible. Like what we did with vaccines a decade ago that laid the foundation for COVID-19 vaccines we have today. Like we did when the interstate highway system that transformed the way we traveled, lived, worked, and developed. Americans could visit relatives anywhere in the country with just a family station wagon. Business here in Pittsburgh could load up a truck, get a product to Portland or Phoenix. To this day, about a quarter of all the miles 
Americans drive each year on one of those very original highways. Imagine what we can do, what's within our reach when we modernize those highways. You and your family could travel coast to coast without a single tank of gas on board a high-speed train. We can connect high-speed, affordable, reliable internet wherever you live. Imagine knowing that you are handing your children and grandchildren a country that will lead the world in producing clean energy technology and will need to address one of the biggest threats of our time. That's what we'll do. All together, along with the American Rescue Plan, the proposal I put forward will create millions of jobs, estimated by some Wall Street outfits over 18 million jobs over four years. Good paying jobs. It also works to level the playing field, empower workers, and ensure that the new jobs are good jobs that you can raise a family on and ensure free and fair choice to organize and bargain collectively. That's why my plan asked Congress to pass the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, and send it to my desk. This plan is important, not only for what and how it builds, but it's also important to where we build. It includes everyone, regardless of your race or your zip code. Too often, economic growth and recovery is concentrated on the coast. Too often, investments have failed to meet the needs of marginalized communities left behind. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.